I'm Becky Rupert McMahon, Chief Executive at the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association. Welcome to another edition of the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association's My Bar Story. Throughout 2023, the CMBA will be hosting a series of podcasts that have created a living legacy in honor of our 150th anniversary. We'll be bringing you stories from the women and men within our bar membership who have truly made bar history. Now let's get started with another bar story. Well, hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be here with you two today. My name is Taylor Gill. I'm Rita Mainborg. And I'm Irene Keyes Walker. And I want you guys to each kind of give us some background. You know, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to undergrad? Did you do anything before law school? Where'd you go to law school? Stuff like that. So Rita, why don't you go ahead and get started? I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania. And uh, then went to the University of Pittsburgh, where I graduated in 1978. I came to Case Western uh, School of Law. I had never been to Cleveland before I started law school. And uh, then after law school, I uh, started practicing law in Cleveland. It was just the, the best legal town in 1981 to be. And so that's um, my background. Oh, I'm a partner now at Tucker Ellis. I'll turn it over to Irene. My name is Irene Keyes Walker. I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, went to Rice University, majored in English and history, and then went to law school after a year off at Duke Law School, where I met John Keyes, a fellow student, and he was from Elyria area, Columbia Station, Ohio. And we got married after law school, and I ended up there and interviewed at Arter and Haddon. And loved it and stayed there. And when it went bankrupt and got together with a bunch of Arter and Haddon attorneys at Tucker Ellis and West, now Tucker Ellis, and retired there about a year ago. So I just want to point out that you were one of the first people I knew with a hyphenated name <laughs> because you were Irene Walker. Right. And John was John Keyes. And he took your name as well, right? Yep. John Keyes Walker. Awesome. We were we were going to go Walker Keys, but it sounded too much like a place in Hawaii. <laughs> Good point. How and when did you know you wanted to be attorneys? Like, what was the pivotal moment for you? Uh, mine was in seventh grade. I was a volunteer on the Hubert Humphrey uh, presidential campaign, and I decided that lawyers played important role roles in government, and I wanted to be a politician, so I decided to be a lawyer. And I really liked writing and speaking, and I did a lot of, uh, in high school, I did debate, extemporaneous speaking, and I just thought it would play to my strengths. I had no idea what lawyers did. Um, even back, I mean, we didn't have law and order to get an idea of what real lawyers do. Um, and all we had was Perry Mason, and that we know isn't real. Um, but that's when I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. I always wanted to be a reporter. I mean, my dad was feature editor of the Tennessean, and I grew up, you know, going to the going to his office on Sundays and proofing coffee, and and so I was a reporter for all the summers during college. And actually, I think it was my senior year. Somebody told me, you know, as reporters, we have to be a mile wide and an inch deep. And I said, you know. That's true. I don't think I want to be an inch deep. I want to be able to like dig into things and get them. And then the real impetus, I have to admit, was my aunt, who was a pediatrician and that whole side of the family really believed in women getting an education, said, go to law school and I'll pay whatever you need. So I said, yeah, I'm there. 
<laughs> I wanted to be Fred Graham, mind you, and only do, you know, stories on the U.S. Supreme Court, but I went to law school. Okay, now we have all the background that we need so we can get into the career stuff. Can you tell us more about like the breadth of your practice, any leadership positions you held? Well, my main focus has been, I would say, medical litigation. So with defending a medical malpractice case or defending a pharmaceutical or a medical device manufacturer, that's been the majority of my practice. I'm fundamentally a trial lawyer, though, and that's what I have really come to love to be, to be in a in a courtroom, convincing a jury uh, of my client's position. It's really my, has become my passion. I ended up being an appellate attorney. And I should tell you, at that time, there really wasn't an appellate specialty, at least not in Ohio. There weren't, there weren't appellate practices. Trial lawyers did their own appeals for the most part. But I was very fortunate to uh, land in a firm where there were some trial lawyers that didn't ever want to see the inside of an appellate courtroom, wanted to like the jury brings back their verdict and I hand my file over to somebody. Irene, you just finished a Sixth Circuit clerkship. So you must know everything about appeals. In fact, about two days, I think, after I started at Arter and Haddon, I was handed a file and said, go do this oral argument tomorrow at John Marshall, because they're using the oral argument in this 8th District Court of Appeals as a teaching tool. And it was a, a wonderful experience. And I found out what I really loved, which is the rule of law. I wasn't, I mean, I had three jury trials. I had a, a, like a hundred whiplash arbitrations. Um, I did subrogation work. I did trial work and I knew that inside and out, but what I really wanted to do was the rule of law that governed everything. It governed the trials. It governs the way we react to situations in our life. It governs the way society is held hold together, um, especially the common law. I just thought that the fact that it's developed over hundreds of years and it can't work unless everybody buys into it you got to do it right. And the way you do it right is in the Court of Appeals and making sure that the right rule of law is developed. So I was fortunate enough to be at a law firm where they encouraged you to do what you loved and to make it into a practice. And the time was ripe in Ohio for an appellate practice. And I had some great opportunities put on my plate. Rita was like head of the trial department. And I was head of the appellate department for about 25 years. She had an empire. I had a village. <laughs> but it was, it was our firm wanted to encourage women in leadership. So we were able to do that. And I wouldn't have had anybody else for 40 years to practice with. It wouldn't have been more fun. Well, you know, I attribute, you said the firm encouraged women to be leaders. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that we had to be leaders to succeed when we started practicing. And I was just reflecting back in the 1980s, when we started practicing, uh, we had to walk into the union club through the back door. We had to sit in a certain dining room at the union club. It was the blue room. Irene said it was called the bitty room. I never heard yeah. that. We could not join the court of Nice Cyprius. Uh, which, for those watching, may know what it is. It's an invitation-only social club. That's how it describes itself on the website for lawyers and judges. So there were barriers 
for women in the 1980s when, you know, we started our career. And I think that made us have to work a little harder and gave us a little bit more steel, my personal opinion. But I think that's what it was. Just provide us with some background on what that was like. Was Were there any attire issues? Did you feel marginalized, individualized in any way? Were you uncomfortable in any way? Well, I think I'll tell the pants story. Okay. So when Irene and I started in 1982, the, the dress code everywhere, not just at Ardor, was to wear skirts and dresses and, you know, and it was Andy mostly host. for secretaries at the time. <laughs> right, mainly mainly secretaries because there weren't that many women lawyers. Frankly, we were reminiscing that there was only one woman partner when we joined the firm. And she wasn't even in the trial department. She was a business lawyer. And so one day, I think it was 1982, maybe three, it was pretty cold out. And uh, we decided we were going to wear pants to work the next day. But we would both wear pants so that we were pretty sure they wouldn't fire both of us. They needed. <laughs> and uh, so we did. And we broke the the uh, pantyhose barrier or the pants barrier that year. <laughs> and look, today, everybody's wearing pants. Uh, all thanks to us, Irene. <laughs> <laughs> Trendsetters you are. <laughs> well, and, it, it, and I have to tell you, and Rita would agree with this, they used to mix us up because... We both had short hair and wore glasses, and, and we were women. And so it was like, well, you know, she's the woman lawyer. You know, <laughs> Oh, no, that's Irene, the woman lawyer. That's Rita. Although our class, my memory is our class of eight associates starting that year, five of us were women. I mean, we were the start of the, of the, of the increase in women. And, and so they kind of had to figure it out on the fly as they were going along. I think they went through maternity leave. They went through uh, how they were going to handle all these different things. And, and I mean, my mentor, I think I mentioned this to you earlier. He said to me, the most beautiful sight in the world is to see the sun rising from the office after an all-nighter spent finishing a brief. And I kind of just went into that because I was in my world. And I'd been used to working with guys at the newspaper and, and you know, I had brothers. And so I didn't probably have it as much as Rita did. I mean, she was more on the front lines of judges, trial judges. You know, appellate judges aren't going to call you little lady. So <laughs> for the most part, <laughs> sure. And that's just so astonishing to hear because my incoming class, Tucker Ellis, all five of us are women. So we are 100% women through and through. And so I cannot imagine how challenging it was to, even though you had four other women with you, how challenging it was to be the minority of the minority, being younger, being women, that had to be super marginalizing. So did Ardern Haddon provide you any form of support, comfort, endorsement of women in leadership, things like that to bring you some solace during those years? Well, there weren't any women in leadership when we were associates because we were the, you know, that was us. I just think in the 80s, that was decades before Me Too. That was decades before people recognized the words equity, inclusion, diversity. You know, those words weren't used back then. Um, I think the way I remember it, and I will give some credit to Hugh Stanley, who is, I really am grateful for Hugh um, for many things and helping me develop my career. 
it was just like, go out and do it. It didn't matter if you were a woman or a man. There was nothing special done for us, at least that in my memory. Yeah. And and I was in kind of a unique position, like I said, in a, in a firm where so many of the trial lawyers didn't want to do appellate work. You know, it was just a great opportunity. And I was actually an associate when I first became chair of the appellate department, um, almost a partner, but I was not yet a partner. And I remember 1989, when I was still an associate, is when Bob Tucker walked into my office and said, I had this great case where we've settled every issue except whether after a failed tubal ligation, the birth of a healthy baby is a legal damage, and I want you to take this appeal all the way to the Ohio Supreme Court. And it wasn't so much just that he did that, which was wonderful, but that he convinced the client. I mean, you think about how many clients are going to let an associate argue in the Ohio Supreme Court when right. you could have Bob Tucker right. you know, argue the case. And, and he went to bat for me. And I'll, I'll never forget that. And that really, he said, this is going to be a game changer for you. And it was. I mean, that helped me establish an appellate practice where I got appeals from outside the firm as well as appeals from inside the firm. I think that's, that's I think it's a really important point, and it's something that I've tried to do in my career, and that is introduce younger lawyers to the client, make the client uh, feel comfortable with the younger lawyer, praise the younger lawyer. You know, if a, if a brief gets written and it's really good and the associate wrote it, make sure the client knows that the associate wrote it. Um, and we, we learned that from Hugh, from Bob, from other partners in the trial department. Um, and that's a legacy um, that I think we would like to see live on. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing I should mention is at that time, uh, if you're not looking just at the law firm, so many organizations, law-related organizations, were looking for women. Number one, they were looking for bodies to do things, to be chairs of committees and commissions. And I know both of us had a hard time ever saying no, because you know, when you're in this position and you want to go forward, so yes. And so we were saying yes a lot. And these same organizations were looking to have their first or their second woman president or chair or whatever. And so it 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 actually tended to burn the candle at both ends sometimes and do a lot more. But I felt like, for the most part, in the Bar Association here and in other organizations, I was met with open arms. Now, you guys both mentioned Bob Tucker, who is one of the founders of Tucker Ellis, who, where I work. And I know, Rita, you have a very touching story about Bob Tucker and how he supported you through your maternity leave. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I do. I actually, I mean, I've talked about this publicly before. And, you know, first of all, I came to the firm to be a labor and employment lawyer. And, and I did that until I started working with Bob on the medical litigation and found my passion. So in 1994, I delivered um, twins prematurely. And uh, it was a very life changing event. Uh, there was a lot of touch and go. And after about six months, I decided not to go back to work. I was a partner at Ardor, and I had had enough. I thought there were more important things to do. And Bob said to me, I will not let you quit. And I said, what do you mean you won't let me quit? I, if I want to quit, I'll quit. He goes, no, 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 I'm not going to let you quit. How many hours will you give me? 
So I thought about it and I said, I'll give you 12 hours a week. And he said, okay. And I told him, this is what I'm willing to do. And he said, okay. When I look back, it was a very pivotal moment. I mean, in six years, I was back working full time. I became a practice group leader. I became the trial department chair. I became chair of the partnership admission committee. I've held almost every management position there is in the firm. It's true. And without, <laughs> and without that moment with Bob, it, I wouldn't have done any of it. So awesome. it really, I mean, he is very dear to me and very instrumental, was very instrumental in my career. Well, I'm very glad to hear that you both had such amazing employers and support from partners and other people that you worked with. Did you have any external support through legal organizations in the community or different things you do outside of work to kind of bring you some solace with your womanhood as well? You play tennis. <laughs> <laughs> Not until after I retired, really. <laughs> I was I remember being on the uh, Avon Lake library board, which was kind of an eye-opening experience on um, just, you really get to know your neighborhood that way. And and there were other, the uh, community shares board, uh, a lot of boards and community services, I think, give you a lot of uh, insight into your community and the ways other people live and get you out of the legal world sometimes when you're just doing battle all the time. I did community work, but I, I think one of the things that was supportive for me was the William K. Thomason of court. And I actually tried a case before uh, Judge Thomas in the 1980s. And he was such a, I mean, he's the judge's judge. He was just unbelievable. And so I was really proud to be in that inn and then to be the president of that inn. That was, I think, a very helpful in my development, both as um, a practicing lawyer and as a leader. But I, I will say for women today, and Tyler, you may have some insight on this, but um, we were talking about this earlier that I read somewhere that you need a critical mass of whether it's women or racial diversity or whatever it is before you can really have success and communication and interaction. And it's between 20 and 30%. So once you have 20 or 30% women in a law firm, then you start being heard. And that's what I remember for me, the pivotal book was Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Because especially growing up in the South, I had a way of communicating that was very deferential. And I would be in one of those meetings where I would have an idea and it would just like, I never said anything. And then it did it, 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 and then a male member of this organization or meeting would say the same thing. And they say, great idea. And I'd go, wait, I, I said that 15 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> and, but if you had more women in the room, that would not happen. And it was just a matter of different style of speaking. You just have to become aware of it. Do you feel like you have that critical mass now that you're noticed? I do. My entire first year class is all women. And so we kind of relate on things like verbal tics or what to wear to certain events, things like that. And it's very helpful in having that support or how to even wear my hair sometimes. I just, I don't know. So having that feedback loop was definitely helpful. Um, but I will say that at times it can be a bit difficult to navigate the difference between being young and starting and just beginning your career and those 
women differences. Um, it's only my first four months of <laughs> being a lawyer. So I'm still trying to navigate and figure some things out. And I think that'll help me differentiate moving forward. But having my first class being all women has been life changing for me. Cause I've, I've never had that before. So this discussion raises in my mind the whole question of are affinity groups good or bad, right? Is it good to belong to a women's bar association? Does that really help you succeed in a men's profession? My point of view on that is whatever gives you power, whatever gives you strength, you should do. I was never super active in the women's bar association, but I have done things at the firm and very like minor things. Like years and years ago, I started this secret outlook group. The name is Mona Lisa. (laughs) And it was for the women lawyers in Cleveland so we could communicate with each other. And I remember setting it up. It was all very secret. You know, nobody knew what it was, but us. I And I think, so the, the bottom line is if it gives you power, if it gives you strength, do it. If you don't want to, you know, should you be a woman lawyer or do you want to just be a lawyer? How about that whole controversy, right? Uh, I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah. And maybe maybe we'll get to the point where you won't need to know the answer because no one will ever say woman lawyer anymore. I mean, they still have categories Right, the top 150 women litigators in the U.S. under benchmark, and this right. so, so there's still a ways to go. My favorite moment was during a Scott Ponzer, which you don't want to know what a Scott Ponzer is, <laughs> argument in in Canton, and all three judges and both advocates were women, and one my my opponent had a hot flash in the middle <laughs> of the argument, and afterwards. The judges came down and we were all talking about hot flashes. And I thought, how far is this from when we had to learn how to talk about last night's football game, right? (laughs) Every time we went to a meeting of lawyers. And it was just, it was the greatest thing in the world. And I think women judges, they progress so fast because in a state where they elect judges, and for some reason, we all have our theories, women do very, very well in judicial elections. And I think having a lot of women judges has really helped the profession as a whole. I would agree with that, definitely. When did you start to notice the shift in women in the law, like more women judges, more women in firms? When did that start to become more prevalent and commonplace? 2000. Oh, wow. I don't think yeah, it was. I, I, would, I would say, I think it kind of goes in dips and waves. Like our class, there was kind of a big push and then for a while, people would coast, and then there would be a big push. I don't remember when I was on the – it was actually Cleveland Bar Association. I was head of the uh, Commission on Women in the Law. I think that was in the 90s. And we did a big report, and there was you know, a big push going on then, and then things would get kind of calm again. So I, I think it goes in fits and starts. So with this <laughs> gradual growth of women in the law – there still are some issues that we need need to work on. So touch on those. What issues do you still see for women in the law that are prevalent? So, I mean, the biggest issue from a law firm perspective is getting women into the partnership and to be owners of of the firm. And that is a problem that has been around forever. And I don't know the solution to that. Um, I don't. All, All I can say is that that whole you know, starfish story, you know, the little boy sees all the starfish and he throws one into the ocean and someone says, why would you do that? And he said, well, what I did made a difference to that starfish. If we, who 
are mature in our practice, not only the women, but the men, if we champion women associates and get them, get them the skills to develop business, um, you know, that that's one step. Changing the mindset of partners, maybe as well. Recognizing that someone who works part time can have value as a partner is really important. I mean, we have a part-time or reduced hours partner who's female, it's very significant. I do think the fact that there are a lot more women in general counsel positions now, too, and savvy savvy law firms are realizing they need to promote women and minorities into partnership position to get these clients because they are looking for that in the in the attorneys they hire. And just the little things, like I said, that why do we still have a category of 150 best women litigators? <laughs> when you think about it, you know, the best doctors comes out. They don't differentiate between yeah. the best female doctors and the best male doctors. And have you ever heard a, a lawyer referred to as, oh, he's a male lawyer? Yeah. No, we don't use that terminology. I guess when when we don't need the term woman lawyer maybe we will have seen success. Now, do you view that term as a tool of empowerment or marginalization? Because for me, hearing the term black lawyer, for example, is very inspiring to me because there's very few of us. I would say it all depends on the context. How's that, Judge Keyswalker, for the <laughs> answer? I mean, if I'm trying to win business and being a woman lawyer is advantageous, then I would like to use that term. If being a trial lawyer is advantageous, then I'd like to use that term. I think it tells me you haven't reached critical mass yet. Right. And mm -hmm. that's what you need to do. And I know there have been pipeline efforts starting in, in law schools. I think every occupation and every profession really benefits from diversity of thought, which means you have to have diversity of upbringing, diversity of economics, diversity of race, diversity of gender. It just needs to be grow from, all right, the law is no longer an old white man's game to the law is everybody's game. So with that, do you guys have any advice for young women lawyers like me who are up and coming and trying to reach the heights that you two have reached? Have fun. <laughs> I would say take your craft seriously. Put in the time, put in the work. I tend to believe that hard work pays off with success. I don't know if that makes me sound naive, but that was my path. When I look back at law school, that first year of law school, all I did was study. I didn't have a life. I lived in the dorm. Uh, I studied. And I did really well and was like, oh, my. I mean, I was shocked because I thought I would not do well. I thought all these people from Ivy League colleges were going to do better than me. And so I'm a believer that putting in the hard work uh, will pay off. I have two pieces of advice. One is be curious. You know, it doesn't feel like work. I remember I would be one of those people who would watch the sunrise. I didn't actually ever do that. My husband would have had a fit. But <laughs> I could. Hours pass that I don't even know when I'm actually trying to burrow down and find the answer to why a particular approximate cause is kind of my favorite, you know how that came to be and, and how it really works in the real world. If you love, you love what you do well and you do well what you love. So if you have a curiosity, it'll, it'll take you great places. And the other thing is 
be nice to people. I know they say lawyers are not supposed to, but especially be nice to receptionists, staff, delivery people, docket people, not to mention your opposing lawyers. You can be totally disarming um, just by being nice. And it's amazing the people, you go to a party and you don't spend all your time talking to, oh, this is a a really successful lawyer, I need to go talk to them about this. You go you go talk to the staff person sitting in the corner who's had nobody to talk to, and you'd be amazed what they end up doing for your career someday. They put a word in for, with someone, and you never know. But you're not doing it for that reason. You're doing it just because you're a nice person. But right. it actually makes you a good lawyer, too. I love that advice. I mean, I always thought, you know, why? There's so much energy involved in being mean. I have been in depositions where I've just been sitting there and my heart rate is going like way high and people are arguing and yelling at each other. And I'm like, did I really go to law school for this? What is this all about? Is that really advancing that lawyer's client's position by being a jerk? No. So I totally agree with that. Tell me what your favorite case was to try and why. Why don't you start with your favorite oral argument? Oh, my favorite oral argument. Well, it was that case I mentioned earlier that Bob Tucker let me do. And this was failed tubal ligation, admitted negligence, settled all of the damages except for one, the cost of raising the child, which raises all sorts of bioethical issues, which was also a new field of law at that time. But it really um, clocked into my favorite which is, you know, what do we as a society use the law for? Where we decide what's a damage, where the benefits are outweighed by the harm, and is the birth of a child to parents who then have financial responsibility for the child a benefit or a detriment, and should juries be weighing that? Is that something we as a society could do? Oh, God, what a great case. So we had uh, a huge mock argument where the whole firm was invited, secretaries and staff. And in fact, one of our secretaries asked a question during the mock argument that was one of the first questions asked of my opponent during the real argument. And so I thought that was, uh, again, an example of why you're nice to everyone. So I did the argument and we actually won. But what I really liked was a few months later, Herb Brown, who was one of the justices sitting on the court at the time, wrote a mystery thriller and had it published. It was work of fiction, and it's actually pretty successful. It's called Presumption of Guilt, I think. And I opened the book, and the first three pages start the story about the 35- or 30-year-old female attorney giving an oral argument before the Supreme Court on whether the birth of a healthy child is a legal damage. And he had questions and answers, which were actually from the oral argument. So I was like, oh, my God, I'm in a book. This is great. And it's not a law book. And But the funny thing was I got to page nine, and I just decided I was going to turn right around and get one and send it to my mother when this attorney went back to the office and had sex with an associate in the janitor's closet. So <laughs> that, I can't send this to my mother, but it was still... My very favorite oral argument of all. Oh, there was one more. I, I was, had a maritime oral argument in the Sixth Circuit and they had a visiting judge assigned named O'Connor. And so I knew they get 
district judges as visiting judges from all over. And I looked everywhere for an O'Connor who might be my visiting judge, because you always want to know who you're going to be arguing in front of. And I couldn't find anybody except a district judge in Texas. And I thought, what's a Texas judge doing in Cincinnati, Ohio, on the court? And I walked in the courtroom, and it was Sandra Day O'Connor. She had been retired. She had just retired, and she was sitting by designation in the Sixth Circuit. Well, this was a maritime case. And she had been on the court, and I think she actually wrote the pivotal decision controlling this case. I was not prepared. (laughs) And she did not think that I had properly interpreted her opinion (laughs) in the U.S. Supreme Court and made no bones about it. So it was a little bit humiliating, but it's okay. I got to argue in front of Sandra Day O'Connor. So That's That's a great story. Well, the common theme is about mothers. Because although I don't know if this is my favorite case I tried, but it's a legendary story. And that is the first case I tried by myself. I had a few jurors who I made a mistake leaving them on. I really didn't understand the voir dire process, I have to admit. So I thought I couldn't bounce them when I could have in any event. Uh, On the third day of trial, my mother called me and asked me how things were going. And I said, not too well. I have these two jurors. And every time I speak... They go like this, they shake their head, no, and I'm really worried. And she said, oh, I'm going to go to mass in the morning and I'll pray for you. Well, the judge had, uh, the visiting judge had was very clear that we started every day at nine o'clock, whether you were there or not. So the next day at nine o'clock, juror number one was not in her seat. The judge looked around and he put the alternate in the seat. And it was, I mean, I looked up. And I thought, thank God. (laughs) And um, the juror had missed her bus or the bus was late or some reason she showed up and she was off the jury. And I won that case seven to one. And um, I attribute that victory to my mother. (laughs) That's awesome. Mothers truly do rule the world. (laughs) Mothers are very important. (laughs) Now, Irene, you mentioned oral arguments that you've done in the past. Is it true that you did your oral arguments without any notes? (laughs) Yes. How did you do that? (laughs) That is incredible. It was a trick. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's one of the things from being a journalist. um, I used to realize if you were a journalist and you were interviewing something, you had to learn to take notes without looking at your notepad because you needed to keep eye contact. And I, I think that's true with judges. You know, they... They want to talk to you. They want to have a conversation with you. They want their questions answered. They don't want to hear your nice little speech you have on, written on your pad or written on your note cards or whatever. And so the only way to really let them know I was there to engage them was to walk up to the podium without anything and just say, I'm here. Let's have a conversation. And it it takes a lot of discipline because I don't have a great memory but I had to, you know, memorize case citations and know citations to the record and things like that. But that's pretty much what you do. I always tell people, first of all, the night before oral argument, have a glass of wine because you need to be able to get to bed. But here's when you have it. You're going to work and work and work. And at 9 p.m., you're going to find a case, a question that they're going to ask you that you don't know the answer to. Oh, my God, how did I miss this? I've had this case for two years, and I never saw this issue come up before. What am I going to do? By 10 o'clock, you'll have resolved it. Oh, of course, that's the answer. Have your glass of wine. Go to bed. So (laughs) 
then when you get up the next morning, it's all simmered in your head and you get up there and that question that so worried you at 9 p.m. will never be asked. Guaranteed. (laughs) Rita, you mentioned your mother. And I know for me, my mom is one of my biggest influences in my life. And so I'm curious to hear who are you two's biggest influences in your life and your career and why? Hugh Stanley, who is now retired from the firm, he was head of the trial department. He showed me that it was okay to be who you are. Like you didn't have to fit a standard or image. I mean, Hugh was somewhat eccentric. And um, so I have, I owe a lot to him. And obviously, you know, I owe a lot to Bob Tucker in, in how he helped my career. I guess I'll mention Dick Dean too. Dick Dean, a partner of our firm, when I tried that case by myself, my first case, it was his case. And he said, we talked about this before, when those male partners gave you things to do so you could make your career. I mean, that's what Dick did. Go try this case. He didn't even show up in the courtroom. And then um, actually after the case, um, Crawford Morris, who was the dean of medical malpractice law in this county, uh, wrote me a letter on the letterhead, hand wrote a letter to me on the uh, stationery of the Morris Cottage And I had it framed and he said, you know, I'm so proud of you. You know, you have arrived. And it was, that was really very impactful to me. That's amazing. I would, I would name the same people, three people, (laughs) Bob Tucker, Hugh Stanley, Dick Dean. And I think the thing they all had in common was they were, they were interested in your life. And it wasn't just us. They were interested in everybody in their group for, for Bob, the whole firm. I mean, and it just made you feel like somebody cared. I did have one other. He was about 80 years old when I started practice, but his name was Tom Koika. And he was the first person to really, even he wasn't an appellate specialist, but he was acknowledged as one of the greatest legal writers in the world. Taught me how to do a whole brief with the, with the headings, making one sentence telling the story of your case. And I, I, I told Rita after my first year, he sent a, a review of me into the head of the trial department who came running down because we got copies of the reviews. He came running down with it and he said, please don't get upset. I know he said you were the best lady lawyer he'd ever worked with. <laughs> That's okay. He's 80. <laughs> and I, I think some of this is people who had daughters, men who had daughters, as those daughters got older, and wanted to do something with their lives, they realized, I want to make sure Rita succeeds so that somebody will make sure my daughter succeeds. I absolutely agree with that. Well, I've covered everything I wanted to cover in terms of your careers and, you know, womanhood and lawyerhood and how they intersect. But I'm curious to know, what do you guys like to do now? What are your favorite pastimes? I love theater. Uh, I'm not very, I mean, I don't act in it. I like watching it. So my husband and I always go to uh, Niagara-on-the-Lake to see shows at the Shaw Festival. And this year we bought a house in Niagara-on-the-Lake. So I'll be spending more time there. I'm a huge dog person. I have been on the board of the Animal Protective League in Cleveland twice. Uh, I was the president. So uh, animal welfare is one of my passions. I actually love the theater, too, in the stage part. I was in Nice Prius after they started admitting women, and I do miss it. But I, my husband and I have, uh, he now has an encore career as a mystery writer. He won uh, Best First Novel at the American uh, Mystery Association. 
um, and has has done a lot like that. So we now live in Florida. I play an awful lot of tennis, and I do pastels. I love uh, drawing and, and pastels, and I have a studio down there where I can do that. And I fish a lot, fly fishing and uh, kayak fishing, nothing in a powerboat. I don't like to go out on waves that make me seasick. All right. Well, I think that concludes our podcast. I do want to thank you both for your time and speaking with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And also for your work in trailblazing room for young female lawyers like myself to come in and fill your big shoes. I really appreciate it. And to the CNBA, happy 150th anniversary. My name is Taylor Gill. I think that's it. Thank you for joining us for today's My Bar Story. To hear other bar stories or to check out any of the CMBA's other podcasts, please go to Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You can also go to our website at clemetrobar.org forward slash podcast. We hope you listen again soon.